0: Breathe with me. I've been thinking about breathing. It's probably the single most important collective function of all the various parts and systems that make you up do together. Replace the oxygen, get rid of the carbon dioxide, you, we, I, at any point, minutes away from certain death. Pretty big fan of this air stuff myself. And I've been thinking about consciousness as it relates to breathing the crowning achievement of humankind consciousness, the power player of the body, the most important component of the whole system, what makes us humans human, what makes me, me, specifically, that I am really, really, really smart. (laughs) Which is already a funny picture. I'm using consciousness to think about consciousness in what I imagine it must have felt like to be one of the beautiful people in adolescence, just staring at yourself, blown away with how pretty you are. And my consciousness is doing that, staring at itself, so proud, pondering the big stuff. And then I take a nice big breath of air, a conscious breath of air, and it hits me this whole time. I've been using my conscious mind to marvel and navel-gaze at myself. The other systems, meanwhile, the unconscious parts of the brain, the nervous system, the respiratory system, the hormonal system, digestive system, have all quietly and humbly, you know, keeping me alive. While I was thinking these oh-so-important thoughts, I didn't even have to think about breathing. I was just breathing in the background. You know when something shifts, creates a crack just big enough for you to see something different? Well, I got it. And I saw it. My glorious, all-powerful, magnificent mind was not even trusted with keeping myself alive. Now in school, it was just casually explained that the mind had better things to do than to worry about breathing. Yeah. Right. Consciousness, right? Think of all the important things that you thought in the past hour that kept you alive like breathing did. That's like a hedge fund manager looking down on a water treatment worker. Yeah, excuse me, I'm too busy playing with fake numbers all day while you do lowly, dirty things like prevent the world from becoming a literal fucking shitstorm and the water from killing me. So if you have a glass of water nearby, take a nice sip, take a nice thank you moment for the water treatment worker who made the water not kill you and your house become a literal shitstorm. And it reminds me of one specific psychedelic hallucination uh, years ago where I got into an argument with a tree. It's a pretty long ordeal, but I can sum it up. The general gist of this conversation being, listen here, ape man, I've been here 90 years. I've seen a ton of you little monkey things running around and I'm not impressed. I think we figured it out 370 million years ago when we just decided to skip the whole consciousness thing. Tell me you hate me, chop me down, make me a chair. I won't frown. I see you little busy, busy, worry, worry, kill and fuck and fight and feed while I just hang out and have everything I need. And the tree didn't rhyme, but I like saying it that way. For whatever reason and it sums up like a three-hour conversation in a fun little rhyme all this to say no your consciousness is not trusted with breathing and none of this is meant to diminish any of the work you do with your conscious mind but to remind you of the whole picture all of it and to hold as much as you can while deciding how you're going to move through the world and use your consciousness today. But one of the very, very cool things you can do with consciousness is extra credit breathing, recreational breathing. So take a nice, deep, big, greedy breath of air, maybe another nice sip of clean water that won't kill you while I tell you a story. The first middle school I went to was called White Hill Middle School. We called it White Hell Middle School. It was a pretty confusing time in all of our lives. Maybe you felt that way too. It was particularly confusing if you were a shy and nervous kid like I was. It was a new land with new rules There's three schools that fed into it and lots of people I didn't know. This is not what shy and nervous people enjoy most in life, is meeting lots of new people. I had questions. Am I safe? Do I belong? What do I do? What do I do with my hands? Will my friends still like me now that they have choices? Sound familiar? It's funny how the big questions about being human don't really change. I think if you do something right, if you're living right, the answers kind of do. One of the schools that fed into White Hill was Lagunitas Elementary. These kids weren't townies like us. They were over the hill, in the valley, in the outlands. They were wild and feral, little proto-hippies. The valley is still kind of like that. But back in the day, the valley kids really stuck out. They ate organic-only in the early 2000s, and they didn't have good sweets or snacks in their house. Terrible, terrible Trader Joe's crackers and things. Many didn't even have TV. These were free-range, non-GMO incarnations of the human species. No homogenizing pop culture to smooth over the edges and make us all have a little bit more in common. These guys really danced to the beat of their own drum. And one of them was Oscar, tall and lanky with Big, thick eyebrows and an untamed thicket of hair that spiraled and expanded from the top of his head and just went outward like a galaxy. As a people observer, getting sat next to Oscar was like a dream come true. It was like watching a master in their workshop, except Oscar's mastery was being Oscar. Oscar was nobody other than Oscar. He oscar phenomenally. And one day, Oscar turns to me hands me a smelly pen and says, hey, you, smell this. So I take this smelly pen, and like a British explorer being invited into some local indigenous ritual, I very carefully and delicately partake in the ritual. "Mm, Yes, here, hand the pen back. And Oscar's just staring at me, and he starts shaking his head disapprovingly. I've done it wrong. I've offended the locals and he snatches the pen back and he says, nah, man, you gotta get in there and smell it. And he holds that pen up to his nose and he plugs one nostril and he just <sighs> and the whole moment is transcending the sum of its parts. This is not a boy sniffing a pen in a classroom anymore. This is the raw spirit of confidence and expression and permission to live and permission to dance with itself. This is a spiritual experience in a portable classroom. He inhaled so loudly and so proudly and so powerfully, the whole classroom has turned. They're staring at him, staring at us, which is one of my greatest fears. All semblance of focus and order in this room obliterated the rhythm of this classroom, hijacked by his vibration. The whole room is staring at us, and he's staring at me. And for a shy and nervous and self-conscious kid, I should be petrified. And yet the entire room of people staring at us is disappearing behind him. All I see is Oscar in this pen and he sticks his hand back out with the pen. A second chance, another invitation, an invitation to life, really. When life gives you a second chance at redemption, you take it and I take it. I grab this pen, which might as well have been glowing at this point. The power is beaming from this totem. The classroom looking at me. Remember, the interruption has already happened. The class is already staring at us. This is our cue. This is the moment where you apologize, where you're supposed to quash your rebellion, and you're supposed to go, sorry, I didn't mean to interrupt. And somehow, someway, in that moment, I choose life instead. (laughs) we laugh we laugh from our bellies and no one else had a clue what was going on i don't even remember what happens next maybe we got in trouble maybe we didn't that's not the important part i had just been given a great lesson in that moment that i didn't even understand yet seed of wisdom had been planted that seed would take many years to sprout But it was planted, and that sprout is still starting to flower 20 years later. I had just learned a new word in the language of breath. I had learned the universal breath word for power and freedom and confidence and permission to live. There are a million ways to breathe. It is its own language, and if any artists or scientists need a project, go record the alphabet of breath. I would love to hear it. The controlled, silent breath when you're in the woods trying to listen to wildlife, and you need to listen with your lungs and get as quiet as you can so you can hear as much as you can. The power of finding that last bit in your gas tank when you're lifting something heavier than you've ever lifted before. The rhythm and machine of the breath of running when you know you have a lot longer to go and you just need to keep filling your tank. And The explosive bursts of making love, breathing hot air into each other's ears. I was doing the same thing Maori warriors do when they haka dance, which if you haven't seen one, you need to. And if you haven't tried it, in the privacy of your own home, you need to. For the sake of your life, you need to try, because it's not one, because it's universal. And you'll feel it. Breath is a human universal. It's our first language. It's the first thing we do on our own here, It's our first threshold, our first exchange. Air in, carbon dioxide out. That's how it works. You cannot have one and not the other. So go on and reconnect. Reconnect with your genesis. And take a nice, deep, powerful Oscar rip of air. (sighs) Doesn't have to be cute or contained. Take it in. Take it all in. Stretch those lungs. The plants made your air this morning, it wasn't free. It might feel free, freely given by the plants, freely taken by you, but not free. It's kind of like this podcast. (laughs) Now my favorite among you, the smart and the sensitive, have just got nervous because you can see exactly where I'm going and I love you for it, but I promise you're in safe hands. Aren't you glad you've been breathing? Welcome to the dance of life. The great give and take, a series of transactions, as uncomfortable and dirty as that word may make you feel. I know you didn't ask for this. I know you have enough going on without hearing this truth, but it's an unavoidable truth. And the only way that an unavoidable truth can hurt you is if you're avoiding it. There's a cost to life, a debt. There's no pause button. You're in it, you're here, no deferment. This is the human experience. You weren't given a tree experience. And the goal of this game isn't to hoard as many chips as you can or to go for broke and spend it all, because unlike the games we play where all that matters is the final score when the game is over, when this game ends, this life game, when it's over, when you die, is precisely when you're no longer capable of keeping score at all. So get comfortable. The play you're in right now the shots you are or are not taking, the things you're giving and the things you're receiving right now, that's the score. And you could go ahead and try to approach it from a different angle. Go ahead as an experiment. Try and take as little as you can. Eat as little food, drink as little water, take shallow little pitiful baby breaths and lay in bed and use as few calories as you can. Become as small, as you possibly can and see how long it takes before you're suicidal. For me, it's a couple weeks. Unfortunately, taking less than you need, participating less than you're supposed to is not how you solve this debt, the debt of life. That's not how you pay the collector here. Nothing is free. Life isn't free. Consciousness isn't free. Think of all the things that had to die to keep you alive so far. And I invite you to take this one in, to get real clear here. I'm getting so much out of this right now, and you can too. So here you are, the give and take of life in the transaction. Nicer word is the dance of life. And on one level, you're doing phenomenal right now. You are 32 trillion cells wearing underwear. The collective you has probably put on underwear today. Take the win. If you ask me, they're working brilliantly together. All the skin cells and nerve endings and neurons, all allowing you to listen to the musings of another 32 trillion cells who bought a microphone. Your cells don't seem hung up on the dance. They take what they need. They produce what they need to produce. They're in the dance. Why don't you join them and be a good dance partner? But if this idea is still terrifying to you, the transaction, the give and take of life, makes you afraid, good, me too. You're my kind of person, welcome. I used breath because it's a perfect transaction. It's your first and last transaction you will take here as a human. And it's beautifully simple. Every breath is a promise of another few minutes. Every year, I consciously decide to renew my sobriety and to do another year. Well, multiple times a minute, you breathe and you renew another two minutes of life. This will happen with or without you, just like life will happen with or without you if you don't participate, but you can choose to join the dance. No matter how defeated you are, no matter how lost you are, how broken you are, how much you don't want to exist anymore right now, You could close your eyes and join your body in renewing another two minutes. Take a nice deep breath, maybe three. I get shivers every time. Here you go, body. Here's another two minutes of humanity. Every breath is two minutes. Every drink of water is two days. Every bite of food is two weeks. Don't quote me on that. You get the gist. So if you don't want to be here, you could reluctantly and bitterly take a nice big breath of air, drink a nice tall glass of water, and eat some nice, fresh, healthy food with some vegetables, please. And you could consciously say, okay, body, I don't want to, but here's another two weeks. And during these two weeks, you could agree to be here. You could join the dance. Join the dance. Dance with life. Participate. Make drawings in the sand, even though it will wash away. Because you will wash away one day. Pet strangers, dogs, and make faces at babies in lines. Dance with your friends. Or if you're single, fuck it. Make out with your friends. Why not? Have fun. But don't lose sight of the cost. The cost of life. There is a cost to life a debt. There is no pause button. You're in it. You're here. No deferment. This is a human experience. You are not given a tree experience. I went for it. I took as much as I could. I had sex with as many people that would have sex with me. I went to as many pretty places as I could. I did as many drugs as I could. None of those things paid the bills long-term for me. I cannot stop repeating the line I heard from Colonel West during a lecture. Please forgive me. So many of us, including me, are in the joyless pursuit of pleasure. None of those pleasures, no matter how great they were in the moment, save me when I'm at zero. The ecstasy high I can barely remember doesn't save me. The beautiful woman I brought back home doesn't save me. The incredible $300 meal doesn't save me. Mariah, texting me it's her anniversary of not cutting herself every year, saves me when I'm at zero. The fact that I answered a message from her and we got to talking and somehow that small gesture has some tiny part to play in that story, saves me. Someone taking time out of their day to tell me that something I did mattered to them, saves me. The strangers, I've stopped for even when I was busy and helped out on the side of the road. Save me. Joy is not a solo activity. Joy is being a good dance partner. Really partaking in the transaction. Joy is participating in life. Joy is not hiding, not withholding yourself because you're afraid of what people might think of you if you were really you, and it's not giving it away free, Either. This is when I meet a ruthless capitalist and I see how engaged they are in the transaction and how clear they are. I wanted to bring a little bit of that to my more sensitive and lovely and spiritual creatives that are maybe a little hung up on the transaction, on the give and take. Maybe you give too much, and quietly expect it to just come back magically without you being a part of that. Maybe you give too little because you're scared of what would happen if you were fully you. But today, I invite you to join the Give and Take. So speaking of Give and Take, this talk is part of something new. This is part of my next give. I want to talk with myself and eventually release podcasts that are all on my own, with my own thoughts. And this conversation really helped wake up some of my desire to get better at the give and take, to go further than I wanted to, to see what I can create and see what I can do. And Claire, our guest today, thank you so much for using our conversation as a landing pad for my first one of these talks. It is based off our conversation. And if you, like me, are good at giving in some ways, good at taking in some ways. You know, it's been a good journey. It's been a good hero's journey for me. But let's say with money, I get a little weird. I'm what some people would call an under earner. A little bit of hang up, really succeeding. Let's say I'm a hider and I'm good at talking to you here and I'm good at talking to my friends and I'm good at schmoozing with a room full of people but if you put me on a dance floor i don't dance i hide and when i get home i wish i had danced this conversation is about the give and take it's about experiencing how you give and take where are you holding back where are you not taking enough where are you not giving enough this is now my conversation with a good friend and future collaborator and someone whose podcast really woke some stuff up with me called The Better Questions which I can't say the name without thinking about, that's right if you want answers you gotta ask questions here's my good friend someone who I think was probably put here to help me work through a little bit of my give and take issues Claire Giovino and we have called this conversation Give and Take. Hey, Claire.
1: Hi, Sam.
0: It is a trip to have you in person. Yeah. It's I got to say. Surreal. I'll just start off just by saying that I'm so impressed by you as like an everyday, ordinary, regular person.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: And I think that's really more the direction that I'm inspired in rather than trying to be a special or be an influencer or an expert. I'm really just trying to be like the best, regular, everyday, ordinary fucking hero I can be. Mm. And I'm just inspired by you for a lot of reasons, but mostly because I feel like everything that you do and live is approachable and Mm. doable. If people want to actually spend the energy living their values, I guess we'd call it, Mm. rather than just talking about it. (laughs) I start the show the same way every single time. You are no exception. Who are you?
1: The infamous question. On a top level, I'm a business owner, a financial coach, a podcaster, a writer. On a deeper level, I am a friend to my family, my chosen family, myself, and I'm a questioner, always.
0: Host of the better questions. Yep. The title of your show totally changed the way... I think about questions, actually. The conversation was great, Mm -hmm. but the title made me start to realize, like, if I want answers to things, I just have to start with a question. Mm -hmm. And so it's made it into my morning routine, Mm -hmm. where rather than starting with direction, I start with a question. And I'll Mm -hmm. be like, what could I do today that would be the best use of my time? Mm -hmm. And then wait for an answer. But so thank you for that. Of course. I realized that you weren't always on the track of working in finance and working Mm -hmm. in helping people with money. And I'd love to just back up a tiny bit and just go into how you kind of got here.
1: I started as a teacher. I didn't really know what I wanted to do. So I was an English teacher at a university and it also gave me this ticket to the world where I could travel to different countries and teach ESL. So I traveled to 18 countries in three years. And then I was building these connections with my students in the classroom, and, but I felt limited by the subject. I was sick of talking about grammar. And so that's where this obsession with psychology, where that stemmed from, where I just wanted to go to the heart of every conversation that I was having. So I went actually more an entrepreneurial route and open my own business. But during all of that, I was exploring my relationship with money and working under a bunch of different financial advisors. So my first business ended up growing more than I expected, but it didn't have my heart behind it. It's a recruiting business. So I've wondered if it grew because I didn't have an emotional attachment to it. I was what, free to develop it in a what, way. What
0: does it do? What's the recruit? It's
1: a recruiting service. So we recruit assistants and then assign the assistants to busy professionals. It's called Inbox Done. I realized I loved growing business. I loved the leadership involved in that and delegating and outsourcing and operations and all those things. And then meanwhile, on the side, I, was, I had all these different creative outlets, and I do better when I have multiple outlets I can go to, one being the financial business and one being the podcast. And so questions were at the heart of really everything I was doing, though, it was the theme of how can I build the best team dynamics that I can by asking questions and figuring out the communication styles of every team member and what motivates them. In my financial business, how can I get to the bottom of the beliefs underneath these money hangups? And then in the podcast, is where I feel like it's the purest form of questioning. It's all about questions.
0: We're going to avoid money hangups for as long as possible in this conversation because <laughs> that's obviously the elephant in the room. You know a little bit about me, mm. we've been friends and have been a part of a book club together. Mm-hmm money's a struggle for me so i'd love to talk about something just a little we're just going to just push Keep it like 10 more minutes okay. i interrupted you a little bit when you got onto something that i think i relate to a lot which is that when it wasn't something that you were passionate about you had an easier time just getting it done getting it out there perfectionism is a huge part of my story all the most important things to me are the most impossible to get done mm-hmm. because it's where like my critic dials in and like gets really vicious I'd love to hear a bit about your like observations in that dynamic where you do have a company you're doing big things building a big company mm-hmm. and then you also have a passion project where you'd probably like more of your resources to go but tell us about the the dance because I resonate to that
1: a lot. Mm. it's the question I'm always asking myself if I what do I want the thing that I love that's closest to my heart to be Fill up my days, or is it better to not put the pressure on it to pay all my bills and kind of keep it in the margins of my life? And I think the stakes feel higher emotionally for the things that are closest to my heart. I do believe that your gifts often live right next to your deepest wounds, and so I think that's also why it can be difficult to go all in on them and and show them to the world. It feels a lot more vulnerable. But it, it's something that I'm I'm still constantly wrestling with but have gotten to the point in my life now where I've seen the opposite. I've seen the thing, the business that's not tied to my heart grow and be the main source of my time and energy. And now I'm ready to just see what happens if I go all in on the heart business.
0: Is this the first time going all in? hmm Wow.
1: Even with the podcast, I dabble on it and the side... I've catched myself like, oh, that's unrealistic though to make it my full source of income or my one main thing. But I haven't actually tried yet. I've always kept it kind of in the margins. And when I have time, I put out a new episode. So it feels like the final frontier, actually.
0: Wow, brace yourself. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) What I have found going all in is kind of like the greatest spiritual gauntlet you will ever go through. Mm -hmm. So when I was collecting just like, A simple 70 grand a year, and I could just show up when I wanted and work for another company. I had a lot easier time being a spiritual person. Mm. When I started working for myself, it's like, there's all your stuff right there. So it'll be interesting to keep talking and see how that goes. We're doing the exact opposite. Mm. We're like starting to take in, like slowly, but starting to take in clients that we really like and starting to work on other people's stuff just to back up a little bit on that pressure. And so it's kind of interesting. I just wanted to, at least for the listeners, say like, hey, this is like a throttle. You can put it down or back up as much as you want. Mm -hmm. Because I hate the idea that the goal is to quit your day job and do the thing that you love. I think it's really misleading. And for me, with sculpture, it wrecked it a little bit.
1: For sure. I've seen people get tripped up on the jump and then that will appear advice of quitting the job. And it does. I've seen like a lot of really beautiful art just gets snuffed out because all that pressure is put on it too early and too soon versus like gradually building it up on the side. And also we don't have to monetize everything like it doesn't make it more worthy or valuable to put a price on it. I think we can stop ourselves from doing that out of fear. Like I think that's the place I've been in is I haven't actually tried to make this my one thing yet but it's also the capitalistic society that we live in. Like it's a compliment now when you say, oh, you're so good at baking. You should open a business. Some people just want to create for the joy of creating. That's fine.
0: Okay. We can talk about money now. (laughs) Okay. (laughs) I've warmed up to it. Okay. Tell us about budgets and helping creatives.
1: Yeah. So my financial story began while I was traveling to all these countries. So, I was sent my first credit card in the mail at 18 and maxed it out immediately and was given no financial education in school. I think it's kind of luck of the draw, you know, if you have parents who discuss it with you and or not, the public school system doesn't do a good job preparing anyone for financial basics. So I traveled to all these countries on credit cards and came back with a huge bill and a huge balance. How
0: huge? Um, We want to know.
1: Yeah, huge for me on my teacher's salary, right around $30,000, which on my little meeker teacher's salary, it didn't feel real.
0: Oh, I've seen the $30,000 bill with some of my friends who I went to college with.
1: It's all relative, but Some would consider that low. But on my little teacher salary, it felt like surreal that how did I get to this point? And I was keeping it a secret too. So it was just the secret I had with myself, which added this whole element of shame to it. So I had a a Chase Freedom credit card and, and I used it all the time and maxed it out all the time. And then one day the irony hit me of this card that is supposed to provide freedom was keeping me very much trapped, the opposite. And credit cards, actually, if you like pay them off every month and don't rack up a balance, the actual terminology is a dead customer. You're nothing to them because you aren't making any money off of you off of interest. And so that was the day, the defining moment where I logged into every account I had, multiple credit cards, and added everything up. And then I actually shared the number with people in my inner circle to let them in on this secret that I was carrying And then from there, I was teaching on the side. That was my nine to five. But I apprenticed under a financial advisor. I worked with every financial expert that I could afford or who would work with me based around my budget and then grew from there. So I designed the system that helped me get out of debt. Helped me organize all my numbers. Helped I learned to start investing, which feels really risky when you know nothing about it. And then I learned it's actually riskier not to invest because of inflation. And then I became a financial coach for Catholic Charities. The, the business like snowballed very organically. So I started with just a couple clients in Portland. I called myself a financial organizer, I made up my own title. And that led to this open conversation of, oh, what is that? And then I was able to very organically share what I do. And then the entire business grew just from word of mouth and referrals. So that's where I'm, I'm refocusing my energies on today.
0: You didn't advertise?
1: Never. I've never advertised once for it.
0: How do you get customers to pass the word on as somebody also in a new business?
1: Yeah. So I started by going to meetups, actually. I'm a really big meetup advocate. And so most of them will have a introduce yourself circle in the beginning where you say your 60-second spiel of who you are and what you do. So I got my first round of clients in that. And so I did a lot of in-person. I was dying to get off my screen. A lot of in-person events. I am an introvert, so I hate networking. But I found like the introductions were enough to start the conversation, and that grew my like initial client base. And then I had referral bonuses for anyone who shared the word and referred a client to me, just received a cash bonus. And then it's continued to grow from there. So again, next frontier is Google ads. It's coming next, but it's been all word of mouth.
0: It feels like really intimate place to be. Like, I feel like I could have sex with somebody easier than I could let them see all my financials. Yeah. (laughs) How do you how do you get people to trust you on that level? And I understand the process. Mm -hmm. In recovery, we do something with our bad behavior. Sometimes you can sneak in your bad spending into there. But it's an inventory. It's like really looking at what's there. And so the start of any good change is facing the stuff. Mm -hmm. But it's really vulnerable, especially with money, which feels very private.
1: Oh yeah. I'm still to this day shocked that people let me in as much as they do. I think people come to me in the business when they're ready and nothing anyone else could say would have made me ready to log into all my accounts. You just hit this moment where the pain and frustration of being out of control of your money outweighs the risk of being seen. I think that's what it is. Every single client cries at some point. I tell them that up front so they feel it's normal. Like we were saying before, the numbers are quite arbitrary. The numbers are just almost like the conduit that helps me get into all of the emotions underneath the money, which is actually what changes long-term behavior. So it's, it's incredibly vulnerable, incredibly emotional, especially in working with couples I want to protect everyone's privacy, but I've had moments where one spouse was in charge of the accounts, and only in the session was it revealed that the account had gotten as low as it was. There's this revelation and surprise and shock, and so that adds like, this whole other element of I'm not just holding that space for one person, who's they're often, they're, I'm the first person to show me these numbers and the beliefs and emotions attached to the numbers, and then that's doubled when it's working with a couple.
0: And you specialize also with creatives?
1: Definitely. So I found this wasn't even how I was marketing the business originally in my offering, but I found I was attracting so many really creative freelancers and self-employed individuals who just have these questions of how to monetize my art. I love creating. And then when it comes to pricing my work, I just hit this immediate block where some of the language they've used is it almost taints the work. It feels less pure. To put money on it so we focus a lot on money just being an exchange of value it's an exchange of energy which objectively most people agree with. But the emotions that run underneath that are strong. It's a lot of imposter syndrome. My work isn't good enough yet to put a price tag on, but I'm okay sharing it for free. All these different questions.
0: So let's get into the details. Like, Mm. What is your thoughts on that? Like, When do you start to take it from something that you moonlight doing into something that you give a Friday? Mm -hmm. What are the ways that you want artists to start thinking about there's a lot of artists who listen to the show Mm -hmm. what mindset would you want them to start thinking about money in relation to their art and to their creation
1: think think about designing your ideal day is a really good way to start time and money are so connected that they're like impossible to separate actually so it sometimes is easier for creatives to start with what would my ideal day look like how would i want to fill this or my ideal week and then kind of reverse engineer from there.
0: Creatives are known for their time management
1: skills. <laughs> <laughs> <Yes>. <laughs> so maybe you don't want your art to fill every day, all day. I've worked with a lot of clients that like want to keep it in the margins and just do, you know, custom quotes instead of making it their full-time gig. So starting with that and then time tracking is really great too. Like where's your time actually going? And seeing what time do you actually have to work with? Because I know it it can be really frustrating also to feel like you're putting your time and energy into the wrong place where what if there's no ROI or return on your investment for that? So questioning, always questioning, what do I actually want? What would the ideal actually be? Do I want to monetize my art or is that just what society is telling me that I should do? And then once you have like your ideal day, and how you would like that filled, then we can break it down into more of the the specifics finance-wise. I have some clients who are more creative when they need to make money. So there's no money in their account and now it's like a necessity that they need their art to fund their life. And then I have other clients and friends, myself included. I'm way more creative when my financial needs are met. Really? Yes. I
0: get real brave at the thousand dollar <laughs> mark in the checking account. I get, re- I get like heroic.
1: <laughs> 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 no, no, no. That's amazing. I cannot. No, it's
0: not amazing. <laughs> <laughs> it's, it's a character defect. Look on the sure.
1: <laughs> it's different. There's no one answer for anyone.
0: Okay. Pull us into your next chapter. How are you structuring that?
1: So now that the business, the first business, the not heart-centered business is running itself, I have this incredible team of 40 plus people who I wanted to make sure they were each in a role that is um, using their strengths. So we kind of designed everyone's role. And so now my feedback for that business is only the highest level input. So it's just the financial decisions or the the high stake decisions is when I'm involved. Otherwise, you know, and again, this took five plus years to get to this point. So that is a slow process. So now that that stable paycheck is coming in through the business, it kind of like simulates what a nine to five salary would be at this point. I... Kind of structure my days following my energy. So we've talked about how you have the most energy from 7 a.m. till noon. Mine starts around noon and then is this incline until around 5 p.m. So I know that's when I'm going to batch my creativity. That's like the prime hours. So I build my days all around those hours. Sometimes I will kind of jump around between the financial business little bit of writing and the podcast, or I'll just focus on one thing every day. And one thing I've realized is I can get really obsessed with creating like the perfect routine. And if I just create the perfect system, then everything else will fall into place. And even the best systems require ongoing tweaking. They often have expiration dates on them. So just constant tweaking I do have writing accountability groups that I'm in. That helps a lot. I have business accountability groups that I'm in. So I try to bring those external minds into my days as much as I can, since everything I'm doing is on a screen.
0: Do you always include a group?
1: Almost every day. Yeah.
0: I think that'd be great for us here because I love recovery groups Mm -hmm. and I love my men's groups, but I do feel like. I would love a little bit of extra support on me. I'm in a totally different chapter. Mm. I'm 33. Jax is becoming a teenager. And so whereas before it really felt like, hey, the most important thing you can give to people right now is your time and mm. your attention. Now with Jax getting older, now it's like, no, it's time really to start thinking about making money mm. and being like a mature emotional adult. Not just taking care of yourself, but actually finding some degree of prosperity. Mm. And it's scary for me. I don't know if you've seen this with other clients. I'm sure you have. I really don't think I'm that weird. (laughs) But like when I start to get successful, things start to get weird. It's like, I don't know if you skateboard, but like when you're going a certain speed on skateboard, it starts to get wobbly. Mm. It's like I get the high speed wobbles and something goes wrong every Mm. time. It always is a great story. I'm a great storyteller. You are. So it makes sense. My dad died or something, this or that. But if you look at it over 10 years, you start to notice, wait a sec, there's always something right at this point. Do you see self-sabotagers like that? Oh, yeah. Yeah. What do you think? I know you're not a psychologist, but you're a really attentive person. How do you work with somebody who has that bit of Mm self-destruction?
1: Yeah, I think the fear of success is as strong as the fear of failure I think there's the fear of the unknown of what comes after that level. I think we continually peek through life over and over again. So I think it's also natural to have rises and then to come back down. I always default to questions. So what is the fear inside, you know, reaching this certain point? You've talked about guilt before. I'd want to know, you know, where does the guilt stem from? I think a lot of it, our behavior is determined by our identity and how we view ourselves. So how is your identity changing when you reach these levels of success? But I wouldn't want to put the pressure on anyone to, now that I'm here, I have to maintain it. I think it's very natural to ebb and flow too and have like a decline. You don't have to maintain that level at all times. But can I ask you, where do you think the guilt stem from?
0: the more I learn about myself, let's say Mm -hmm. the more I learn about being Sam in the world, the more I realize that my consciousness takes credit for so much. Mm -hmm. My consciousness is basically like I'm running the show. I think it's such a small part of the system that is Sam. So in my mind, I am making a meteoric rise, which I'm pretty good at. I know you're not supposed to say that. (laughs) Pretty good at like building hype, getting something going, whether I wanna start showing art in galleries, I'll get in galleries or designing things. I designed something super cool that made the news. Then it's like launching off into space and I just like get shot out of the sky. Mm. So from the conscious self, it doesn't feel like, I don't start to feel like overcome with guilt that things are going so well. Like I'm not there, I am like hungry and I'm staring at the horizon of space. And then just all of a sudden, like the fuel gauges are just like, pew, you know, like, and, <laughs> And we start to plummet. It's hard to tell. I definitely am excited to work with more therapists and figure out what it is exactly. I do think at some point that there is guilt. And I don't necessarily think that it's part of the conscious mind. I bring that up because I consciously want to be a really cool atheist. Mm. I think you can sound like the smartest by being an atheist, but it's never worked out for me. I'm like a reluctant spiritual person who's like really spiritual because it happens to work. But I was thinking about the utility of the concept that someone's always watching Mm. and that there will be judgment. And you see this across the board, like there will be judgment. I think that there are a pair of eyes that see everything that you do and they're yours. Exactly. And if you convince yourself like, no, 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 like having sex with strangers. Yeah, I feel a little bit weird, but I'll just I'm cool. Right. In my conscious mind. I'm cool with that. I think eventually the beast bites back the body, the subconscious, the other parts that make you up besides just the consciousness. Eventually they bite you back. Mm-hmm. and they're going to fight for their own well-being. So if you're doing things to your body, that goes against who you are. If you're doing things to your friends that go against who, who you are. In the guy world, I see it where like some guys just are kind of naturally totally okay being man horse. Mm-hmm. And then if you see somebody who's not okay with it, like try to play the field really hard, they end up really messed up mm-hmm. because you're going against your nature. Let the man horse be man-whores, but you're going to hurt yourself. Why do I sabotage? I think at some point I'm missing bringing some part of me with myself. Mm. There's a word that I've probably said like on every podcast for the last like 10 podcasts called thumos. It's a Greek word and it talks about it's like a generally a very masculine heroic energy. The image of it is two horses like a white and a black horse pulling a chariot. Mm. And the idea is that if you want to have that heroic energy, you got to pull with both horses, the good and the bad of yourself. Mm hmm. Like if you want to be a benevolent, peaceful person, you're going to have to learn how to fight to protect that peace. And you're going to need both of those. If you learn how to fight to protect your peace, you're going to need to learn how to rest when you have it. Mm -hmm. I think on some level, I'm not honoring some part of myself, but it's a bit of a mystery still. Mm -hmm. That's my 20 minute answer to that question.
1: And not casting off the dark part of yourself, the monster that we all could be, like you've said, invite it to the table too maybe some rebellion too i had this i have a weird relationship with social media but i had this one post go semi-viral and that would have been the time to like capitalize on the podcast and i did nothing i went silent for a couple months and for me, it's a bit of rebellion of I don't like to be held accountable to anyone else. I want to do what I want to do when I want to do it. So I think that's why I can self-sabotage with success. More people are looking to you, more is expected of you. Maybe
0: that. What do you do with the rebel?
1: I negotiate with the rebel. I like parent the rebel.
0: The rebel feels kind of right.
1: Yeah, right? it is that question I've learned of... It's the rebel asks the question, how do I want to fill this day? So I think a lot of creatives are rebels with their time and what they want to invest in. But I parent it. So I have like a tyrant in me as much as I have a child who wants to do nothing. So I have conversations with both of those sides. And so daily negotiation, like, you think you can take a shower now? Are you up for that? Okay, let's do that. And that's how I talk to myself throughout the day. That's how I get anything done.
0: All the time. Yeah. Wow. What with your show? Mm -hmm. I'm just going to plug it heavy. I love your show. It's called The Better Mm -hmm. Questions. I think you're an amazing podcast host. Genuinely. I've never spent the time to be somebody that can find cool undiscovered music, but I have Mm -hmm. had that pleasure with some podcasts. Your show is one of them. I feel like, wow, I'm like on something. I don't know how many people are listening, but I know that I'm like on the early wave and that's Mm -hmm. pretty cool. What are you searching for? What drives you in selecting who you're going to talk to? When you think about your growth, what direction you want to go to, where are you most hungry and curious
1: I keep following my curiosity so I never ask questions because objectively they would be good questions or I should ask them I only ask what I'm actually interested in it's weird to listen back on yourself and all the different phases but I can see like what I was working through with each podcast and there actually is a rebellion piece in it because I was raised in a really fundamental religious environment where questions were a threat to the established dogma and. And any questions I asked were met with a lot of anger, which I now know is a guise for fear of what if I'm not right about all of this. And the story I've told before is I was still very much a Christian going into college and was really excited to be in this secular environment and so i signed up for this old testament class ready to be this light for christ and the teacher the first day he said but how do we know that the serpent is actually the devil or satan it doesn't say that it's an interpretation so i brought this question home fascinated by it to my family and the response was can you drop the class the podcast really stems from that constant questioning I really just interview the people who interest me, similar to you, if if it's a bigger name, great, if it's not, great. And I'm constantly challenging myself to... Get a little bit more uncomfortable every time and the questions that I ask not for shock value but just I know in myself like what feels safe to ask about and what would reveal myself a little bit more of like what I'm actually thinking about and it makes me feel a little bit more exposed but that's like my personal challenge to myself every time and a little bit of that rebellion of finally this is my platform I can ask whatever I want and not be met with that fear anger and I would do it for free obviously because I am so it's I found the Work that I would do for free, it's led to so many amazing relationships. Why we're sitting here, which is not what I was expecting to come from it.
0: What's the answer to the question?
1: <laughs> to your original question?
0: No. To the is the serpent the devil? <laughs> What's the answer to that?
1: My professor was like uh, had his own agenda, so he was like very much trying to make anyone in the class who might be a Christian not a Christian. Oh yeah academia um, mm-hmm. but it's true we, we are often taking this book literally that has been translated so many times and so much has been lost in all the translations
0: it's a library yeah it's not even really a book in
1: letters
0: yeah yeah adam and eve are absolutely supposed to get kicked out <laughs> yeah. of eden that's my read of it i don't see it like oh no that's the first mistake I'm like, no, this is
1: the rebels
0: entering into consciousness. I I literally think it's adolescence. Mm -hmm. I think it's when you become aware. I think it's the story of when you first look down and get embarrassed about your naked body. And like, I don't buy the whole Mm -mm. fallen creatures. Although I do feel like I will work by the sweat of my brow for the rest of my days.
1: (laughs) Well, and we've talked about how in that story, the fall of man is when despair emerges and is seen conventionally in Christian thinking as the most prideful of emotions, which I think is a really fascinating take of the extreme of self-love. Me and my problems, I am beyond. Even God can't save me. So I think I love that interpretation of the story as I completely well. forgot about that. Mm. Can you
0: tell the listeners the, the story?
1: My senior seminar was a John Milton class, and we did a deep dive of Paradise Lost, and I've forgotten most of it, but what has stuck with me still is this idea of despair being the most prideful of emotions because it's you thinking that you're just too far gone to be saved. My problems are too big, even for God, to save me, and it's it's what theologians say that satan is so self-involved his self-love is what creates the hell within himself and then milton's take is what saved adam was his external but was looking at something outside of himself and getting out of that self-absorption and that self-love by turning to eve and vice versa then they were given this external task to now go work by the sweat of your brow So it got them outside of their own heads and the hell that can exist within us by just extreme self-absorption.
0: I think you mentioned it on a book club. And I was like, I think I emailed you immediately (laughs) like, please tell me more. I need to know more about that. Yeah, the only cure for my suffering is to get out of myself. Unfortunately, I really wish I could sit down and think about it and get it to work. In recovery, we always say can't think yourself out of bad thinking you have to act yourself out of bad thinking if the pile of dishes is exhausting and daunting the only solution is to go help somebody clean their house Mm -hmm. helping them it's kind of like you with the business that you're not as emotionally attached to i can clean their house Mm -hmm. and if you're looking for someone's house to clean it could be a new parents or single parent if you ask your network you'll find someone Mm -hmm. But when you look at someone else's task that you're not emotionally invested in, you can see how simple it is. Not necessarily that it's easy. And I think with most things in life, it's simple, but it's not easy. Mm -hmm. It has saved me multiple times.
1: And you've told me, too, that you do really well in a crisis. It's the mundane that... Can get stuck in the weeds a little.
0: Yeah, I don't think as humans, we're good with abstract problems. Like I think that if we were being methodically hunted down by wolves, I think we'd rise to that occasion much better than if tax season is coming up and Mm -hmm. you're not sure how you're going to pay it. That's a pain I feel almost every year. The solution has actually been to invite Reese, my best friend, to that process. Mm. And for him to say, hey you need an extension sorry man or whatever the case is but for him to just take a look at it with me and just say this is regardless of what you think in your head which is catastrophe Mm -hmm. like I need to move towns (laughs) start a new life it's generally just like this is what's true I think that's probably where you start with the financial organizing oh yeah this is what's true
1: exactly now you have your starting point and I think it's the same as what therapists do it's just holding up a mirror. That's it. And what you were saying earlier, yeah, of course, we can know something objectively in the conscious, but the work of life is surfacing the unconscious. That never ends.
0: Are you okay talking about foster parenting? Of course. Yeah. yeah. When you mentioned that you were at that point, you were training Mm -hmm. to be a foster parent. That's when I really started to go, oh, you're in the presence of someone doing something different. I've seen people start businesses. It's hard work. I admire business owners tremendously I've seen people start families and I admire all parents fostering and adopting it's always stood out to me as a bit above the regular labor of life because it's not required it's going the extra step above I know you're humble so that probably mortifies you <laughs> that we're even putting so much attention on it or like I I'm moralizing it how did that happen and what's that like and what have you learned in the process
1: There's so much I could say about this. I do actually think it requires you to be egoless because these children are coming into your home You often don't know the extent of trauma that's trailing behind them and how they're reacting toward you or behaving toward you has nothing to do with me at all. It is not personal. It's all of their trauma speaking out, especially if they're younger, they don't have the words yet to communicate. So my sister was adopted and we adopted her from foster care when she was about 10 days old. That experience meeting her foster mom stuck with me and I don't know what it says about me, but I love knowing the end point to things. I love things that are temporary. I think it makes them more meaningful and beautiful. So I also love the amount of commitment that it requires, that it's for this set time and I can be fully present and then it's over. Everyone says, but what about saying goodbye? Isn't that difficult? How do you do that? And the story I often tell is I had a friend who was a volunteer in the Mississippi River For anyone who drowned in the Mississippi River, it was his job to go and find the bodies so that the families could have closure. It's very different, the work he's doing and the work I'm doing, but people would always ask him, how can you possibly do that? And he said, it's because I can. And that's how I feel, and I feel that everyone has their thing. That is that, and there should be no guilt around what you can and cannot do. I look at these social workers and caseworkers we're working with, I could never do what they're doing Hosting is also a value of mine. I love hosting people and dinners and welcoming people into my home. So it feels like that core value is also a part of this too, of all the turmoil these children are facing and I get to make this oasis or haven for them, however short. So I love that that element is tied in. If you want, I can talk about living a child-free life, but that's also a part of it as well where... Of course, my sister is my sister. The bond is no different than it is with my biological brother. And so for me, I've never felt this desire to be pregnant. I feel the bond just as strongly with each child who comes in where I can use my maternal instincts and my nurturing as needed. And again, it's one of those things like, oh, you're so good at baking. You should open a bake shop. People have seen me in nurturing environments and said, well, you have to be a mother. You'd be so good at it. I feel that that can look so many different ways and can be for so many different lengths. I lived in Mozambique for several summers and worked in orphanages there. And anyone who's done something similar can attest to the bond that you build with these children who are not your own. I would die for them. And so that I've never needed that biological bond to be there. Also, the stats are when the world feels like so overwhelming. It's hard for me when we focus on children at the border and not the children who are stuck in these systems or about to age out of the foster care system. But the numbers actually aren't that unmanageable. There's around 440,000 kids in foster care currently, but only about 120,000 of them need to be adopted because many of them go on to be with their biological parents or primary caregiver not to target churches, but there are about 380,000 churches in this country. So that number is so fixable in my mind. If if one in three churches adopted one child, there would be no children left in foster care.
0: Or churchgoers.
1: Exactly. If churchgoers did. When they're called, we're called to care for widows and orphans. So It's hard for me to justify. I think it's beautiful when parents want to have kids, and I think the parents who want to give birth should do that. Again, it's something they want, and that certainty is really beautiful. For me, I can't justify creating new life when there's so much life that needs to be cared for already. So it's just been really beautiful. I get attached instantly, and then I assume they'll never remember me, but Maybe I gave them a little bit of peace, like, on the way for, you know, the rest of their journey.
0: Yeah, a reprieve. Mm -hmm. I sometimes work with kids, Mm -hmm. very different, privileged kids, teaching outdoor education. Yeah, that's one of the things that I was not prepared for is how you'll see them on the street, and I'll be like, River, what's up? And he's like, who the fuck are you? (laughs) Who are you? You know, if it's like a year later or whatever, there's something about even just, parenting jacks, but also working with other kids where I think you're also working with yourself mm. and you're working with the kid in you, the parts of you that got let down along the road by the adults. I think our generation got let down huge by the adults in the room. We think of like adulting as a bad thing, mm. right? It's like very adolescent or sophomoreic. I wish that responsibility had been the aspiration of like you are going to take on as much responsibility as you can handle and thrive with it and build i was like so anti-java it's like i think it's probably gen x and below it's just like i'm not going to be in a cubicle man just gonna do my own thing it was like really bad messaging i uh watched like 15 minutes of real world remember that mtv Mm -hmm. show What adult greenlit this for kids? Whoever you are, you amoral piece of shit. (laughs) You wrecked my life. Not really. But it was just like the messaging of what it meant to be an adult was ridiculous. Mm -hmm. Often degrading to the people who show up at a job, and show up for their families, and show up for their communities, mm-hmm. and propelled forward this idea that somehow the specials, right, the unique ones, the stars, were somehow the most important part of a community, rather than the crossing guards, rather than the people that make sure that the kids cross safely, and that there's not more traffic fatalities every year, and that's why we're in a season of just, I'm talking to friends and people mm-hmm. who I love, because I'm more impressed by you than some of the big creative one percenters that I've gotten to meet, which I'm grateful I got to meet. It's not a lack of gratitude, but it's just the more I pay attention and the more I let people show me how complex their ordinary life is, the more respect I have for the ordinary Mm -hmm. and realize how much more important they are, how much more important it is for the people who volunteer to clean the baseball diamond is than the the shining star of the town. Mm
1: -hmm. And possibly more spiritual too. Definitely. I that's one thing podcasting has done well before I forget to your point I have always wondered I love my parents so much but if I had every day been asked how did you fail today and shared my failures and then those were celebrated how different an upbringing that would have been versus how special are you but yes I agree and one thing that this podcast has done the better questions has been this great equalizer because it's not like I've interviewed these huge celebrities but people who have been big in my eyes and whose work I followed for years and almost every single one at the end says something along the lines of was that okay was it enough and it's just leveled the playing field for me the only reason people are big names is because they kept taking action and got comfortable being uncomfortable too in that space but what does it mean to be a big name
0: I don't know yeah. Yeah. I wouldn't know.
1: Yeah. So I agree <laughs> with you.
0: Yeah. What is it that you want for yourself for the next chapter selfishly? We've covered that you're a selfless good person. <laughs> what do you want for yourself in terms of growing and moving into this next chapter of your life?
1: So, I was telling you I'm on a little bit of a friendship tour right now where all my friends live all around the country, all around the world. And right now I'm fostering with my partner in New York. So I'm feeling pulled between deepening roots and nurturing all of these relationships, these friendships I have everywhere. And so I'm holding the questions of when do you move for friendships? When do you relocate for those? Again, they're my chosen family. So locations up in the air. I would love to, to be around all of these relationships as much as I can be. I'd love to keep fostering. My probably 10-year dream is to adopt as many teenagers as I can who are about to age out of the system, which depending on the state is either 18 or 21. And I think about myself as 18. That would have been comical to have autonomy expected of me. So to adopt as many as I can and work through these systems that society has created for better or worse, like money and health insurance and getting your first apartment and going to college and starting a business, all these adult things, and then have these like melting pot Christmases where everyone has a place to come to. And then, yeah, like I said, it's scary to say out loud that I'm going all in on this business that I love and this podcast, which is tied to it, but it's also something I want to put my name on and my face on if you look at my my first business I'm like hardly there and this business is something I want I want to be at the center of I don't want it to be passive income I don't want to delegate it I don't want to outsource I want to be at the center of it so that selfishly my days would be filled with foster kids and financial clients and interviews
0: that's a beautiful dream
1: Thank you. Yeah. <laughs>
0: Left to my own devices, I'm a cynic. Mm, and so same. when dreamers start dreaming, I'm generally like, right? <laughs> but when a doer is telling me their dream, it's like, that could really happen.
1: Mm.
0: There's just a little bit of extra special to it. Are you a Christian?
1: I don't call myself that anymore. I call myself agnostic, but I've come full circle with my faith in the bible specifically where i have no interest in villainizing religion or throwing the baby out with the bathwater i like to take what is true to me cherry pick and just have open conversations i just interviewed a pastor pretty recently who was willing to like go into those places with me i have a friend who's like coming out of a lot of christian indoctrination and is so angry with the way that the church handled his experience and he's saying, going around saying, do you actually believe what you say you believe? Like, why aren't you trying to convert me all the time then? Brought that up with the pastor, but I have no title for myself other than agnostic right now.
0: I think that's a great place to be. I've loved talking with you and getting to know you more. And this is recorded proof that I should use you as a resource for somebody that can help me in the business department. Like I'm sure when you start podcasting full time, I should be paying a lot of attention to what you do. (laughs) I end the show pretty much the same way every time. I'd like to end it this way now, which is if you could talk to yourself at a very low moment of your life, or maybe a moment where you felt like you could have turned left or turned right. What's the message that you would want your younger self to to hear.
1: I'll preface this by saying that I love talking to my eight-year-old self and I love talking to my 80-year-old self and I have a relationship with both because I am both or I will be both. But talking to my younger self, I would say there are many paths to happiness. I think I got really stuck in right and wrong decisions in that binary And when you're stuck in that binary, you assume what the outcomes would have been if you had made different decisions. I think happiness and meaning and fulfillment, there are several different paths to that, which is ultimately what we want from any decision. So just that reassurance.
0: I love that. I learned that lesson through screwing up so badly.
1: (laughs) If you just keep
0: (laughs) crawling, (laughs) it somehow works out in the end. Where's the best place for people to stay in touch with you?
1: The dot com is where all the new episodes go. The financial business is creative dot com. Or on Instagram at the better questions. The best way to reach me is just Claire at the dot com.
0: Thank you. Of course. Thank you for listening to the how to human podcast. If you liked Claire, if you want more of Claire, you can listen to her podcast for free. The better questions. If you'd like to work with her on some of your money stuff, you can go to creativemoneycoaching.com. I think I might. So thank you for listening to this episode. If you liked us, if you want to support us, you could balance out your own give and take. You can write us a review on iTunes. I read everyone. Some of them have saved me. You could share this episode with your friends and family. I love noticing when episodes are getting shared. I can see a slight bump in listenership, and I know what's happening. I know it's you guys. Thank you so much. And you could support us on Patreon, which if you've been listening for a while and you enjoy the show, wouldn't it feel amazing to jump in with the give and take and to join this process and to help these episodes and the growth of this program continue? I think it would. So much so that I support a bunch of people on Patreon as well. I try to keep it at around 10% of what we're bringing in. If that interests you, I'd love your support. You can go to patreon.com slash howtohuman. You can go to our website, hellohumans.co if you'd like to read the show notes in depth. And you can also check out more of Claire at the Better Questions podcast or creativemoneycoaching.com. Thanks and have a great day.